welcome to episode 10 of Theology and Sci-Fi the Podcast. My name is Derek V. Trout, I am your host, and I am so thankful that you have decided to join me today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Today we turn back to the silver screen as we look at Dune Part 1 released in 2021. I picked this in part because I wanted to examine something more recent before this work that we're going to look at today here in Dune. The most recent work of sci-fi that we have looked at in this podcast is over 20 years old. It was The Matrix from Episode 1. So I wanted to look at something a little more current. And I was looking for what I thought was one of the best science fiction movies that have come out over the past few years. And Dune Part 1 was on my list and on many lists that I looked at of best sci-fi movies that have come out in the past 5 to 10 years. And when I watched Dune, Part 1 from 2021. I'll just refer to it as Dune from here on out. When I watched Dune, I, I really enjoyed it and was impressed with it in many ways. So that's why we're looking at Dune today, and I'm excited to see the second part, Dune Part 2, whenever that comes out, whenever that may be, and we'll also have to maybe take a look at that and examine it during that time. Now, Dune the movie is, of course, based off of the novel by the same name, Dune, by Frank Herbert, but we'll not really be discussing the book today, just the movie, and not the movie that came out in the 1980s, of course. Again, we're just looking at the movie from 2021. The film version, Dune Part 1. So Dune 2021 has a star-studded cast with Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, Oscar, Oscar Isaac, Rebecca Ferguson, Jason Momoa, Stellan uh, Skarsgård, Javier Bardem, David Batista, Josh Brolin, Pretty star-studded cast there. Some A-listers that are on that that not all of them play a huge part, but it's a very talented cast here. This was directed by Dennis Villanueva. Dune is rated PG-13 mostly for violence, but it's not as violent as some of those movies in the MCU. So if you're okay with the typical 2021 PG-13 movie, you'll probably be okay with Dune. But as always, do your own research and make that choice for yourself. Before we get started, I'm going to give you the spoiler alert. Um, uh, th this movie is about to be spoiled for you as we go through it and look at the theological themes within it. And if you haven't seen this movie, I encourage you to go see it, especially if you're a sci-fi fan, to pause this to go watch it. It's good. It's worth seeing. It will be beneficial to watch the movie before listening to this. But of course, you don't have to. The choice is yours. When we go to the movie, the opening line, a line which we have to read because it is spoken in an alien language, the line says, Dreams are messages from the deep. Dreams are messages from the deep. Now, on HBO Max, which was what I was watching this on, uh, and, and it's at the time of this recording, it's available on HBO Max and is also available on other platforms uh, to, to pay to stream, to, to watch or to download, but it's available on HBO Max at no additional cost at the time of this recording. And I was watching on that, and this, this line came up, Dreams are messages from the deep. And it came up before the Warner Brothers logo even came up, which I thought was interesting. It, 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 came, it was the, the, the starting thing in the movie before any kind of studio or logos or anything pops up. And I thought that was interesting, that it sets a tone. And also, right away, initially leads us into some interesting question interesting questions about dreams. Now, throughout the film, Paul, the main character, has dreams, or what I would call maybe perhaps they are more visions, as these things often happen when he is awake, but not always. I, th I think we'll hold off on this discussion of dreams and visions for now, but we will get to them. We'll talk about them in a, a time in the film that, that makes more sense 
to, to me when that is. But I just thought that was an, a very interesting way to start before any kind of credits, before any kind of studio. Dreams are messages from the deep. In the movie, we learn right away that the story is focused on the planet Arrakis. And I think it might be beneficial here to give some background about the story and the, the, that I think is maybe missed. In some parts, if you're not really uh, if, if you're not really familiar with the world of Dune, so Arrakis is a desert planet that looks as though it would not be a very desirable planet for people to own. The, the, it doesn't have much water. It's hard to live on. It's hot. It's covered in sand. There are these giant worms. It, it, it sounds like it would be very very problematic to live on, and doesn't look like it'd be a place where people want to inhabit. However. It's a very valuable planet. It's a very sought-after planet because it has an absurdly large abundance of what is called spice. Now, spice is a very valuable substance for two reasons. First, and I'm not really sure how clear this is made in the film, but the, the film does mention this. The spice is, is a drug that gives the user a heightened vitality and a heightened sense of, of consciousness. Essentially, it provides a, a high for people. So, so it's like a drug, but it, it doesn't necessarily give you the kind of high that we think of with drugs. It, it can elevate you into kind of this new heightened understanding, this new heightened vitality, this heightened conscious. So it is a drug, but doesn't necessarily have the, the same kind of high that we have. So, so there are some benefits to that in taking it. And, and spice is also used in interstellar travel, faster than light speed travel. It's used by navigators because it heightens their senses. It heightens their, allows them to have more vitality and a heightened conscious. So, so it's used by the navigators so they can have enough conscious to keep up with the, the, the speed at which they travel. It, it almost seems to me as they have some kind of, of precognition so that they can travel at such high speeds and they're able to do this and able to plot a course without running into something, without, without killing people that are there um, or, or crashing the ship or whatever it may be, since they're traveling at such ridiculously high speeds, their minds can keep up with that travel and can make those decisions when they're on spice. At least that's the way that I understand it. So, so spice has this heightens your senses, heightens your consciousness, gives you these things and also is used in interstellar travel. So it's become one of the most valuable substances in the universe. It's a drug, but it also allows for that interstellar space travel. So it's very, very, very valuable resource, which is why this desert planet of Arrakis or Dune is, is such a desired planet. According to the IMDb, Dune is about a noble family becomes embroiled in a war for control over the galaxy's most valuable asset, while its heir becomes troubled by visions of a dark future. I'm not sure how great of an overview that is, but we'll get into that and much more as we dive into this. So here, let's get started with the movie. To begin with, we learn that House Harkonnen is in control of planet uh, Arrakis. Now, a house is a noble family, and there's somebody who has importance, who has political power, who has armies, who has all these different kinds of things that, that give them influence and fame and, and wealth. So that the, the Harkonnens are a noble family and, and one of the most significant political and military powers in all of the galaxy. The emperor has given House Harkonnen control of Arrakis, and so they're the ones who harvest and distribute the spice throughout the galaxy so they can control the spice. And by doing so, they've become 
even richer than the emperor we hear here. And we really learn that in the world of Dune, whoever controls the spice controls the universe. And on the planet Arrakis, there are also natives. They are called the Fremen. And the Fremen, they aren't exactly fans of the Harkonnens. The Fremen often try to disrupt spice production and the Harkonnens want to kill the Fremen because they get in the way and the Fremen don't want them on their planet because they're taking the spice and they don't care about their planet and they'll do whatever they need to do to harvest it for resources and all this. So the Fremen and the Harkonnen do not get along. But the Fremen were not able to defeat House Harkonnen. But one day, by royal decree, the Harkonnens leave Arrakis. And the Fremen wonder, why did the Emperor choose this path? And that's also a question that I have throughout this movie. Why did the Emperor choose this path? I'm not sure that we have a great answer to that, but we'll get into that in a minute. But the Fremen also wonder this. Who will our next oppressors be? Who will our next oppressors be? So right away, we see the Fremen as a people uh, who have no hope. They know that if House Harkonnen left, then there's going to be another house that is coming in to control and take the spice because spice is just too valuable to not be harvested by someone. So someone's going to come in. Someone's going to take over our planet. The emperor is going to give this planet to someone. Who is it going to be? The Fremen have no hope. Who will our next oppressors be? They have a mindset of being oppressed because that's all that they have been for, for who knows how long. That's all that they know to be oppressed by someone, to have somebody on their planet that's attacking it, that, that is attacking them, that is taking resources, that is getting in the way, that is, is disrupting their way of life, that's not respecting them or their planet. Someone is going to be coming from the outside, and they're not going to be caring what happens to their planet. They're just going to be using the planet for the resources that it has. I want to make this clear that that is not a morally acceptable way to conduct business. To just go into a place, to not care about the natives there, to not care about the people who are indigenous to there, and just go and say, well, we're here because we are allowed to be here. We're here because we've told to be here, and we're going to take all this stuff, and we're not going to worry about what. That, that is not an acceptable way to conduct business. To be looking, what they're doing here is they're looking at profit more than they're looking at people. That's what the Emperor and that's what House Harkonnen has done. So that's why there's trouble between the Harkonnens and the Fremen. The movie, though, next cuts to the planet Caladan, which is the home world of House Atreides, another house here that's a royal house in, in Dune. And the leader of House Atreides is Leto, and he has a, a girlfriend, I guess we would call her. A, I think she's referred to later on as a mistress. He's been with this woman for a long time. Her name is Lady Jessica, but they are not married. So, so I, I, I think they call her a mistress, but uh, he's not married to anyone. Uh, Leto and Jessica are together, but they are, are not married. So that's just the way uh, to understand that. And together they have a child whose name is Paul. And Paul is the main character of the story Dune. And Lady Jessica demands that Paul use the voice on her. Now the voice is, is speaking in a way that people will do what you say regardless of if they want to do it or not. So you say something in the right way, you say something with the right tone, you say something in the right voice, and you can make people do things even if they don't want to do them. That's a very dangerous gift. That's a very dangerous talent to be able to say something and make people do something that they don't want to do. That is a lot of power. That is a lot of responsibility. And we know that with great power comes great responsibility and this voice 
has a pretty big power and there's a lot of responsibility in that to use that the right way. Paul tries, but he fails to use the voice on his mother. And uh, but but Lady Jessica says that's okay because the Ben Jesuit skills take years to learn, and we'll get into the Ben Jesuit and who they are a little later on, and we'll learn about them. Then Paul watches videos about Arrakis, and Paul learns that there are giant sandworms on Arrakis known to the Fremen as the Shai Halud, and we are told this about the Fremen. Long exposure to spice has given the tribe their characteristic blue eyes, and little else is known about the Fremen, except they are dangerous and unreliable. The videos that Paul is watching here to learn about Arrakis is already planting the seeds. Maybe it's actually even watering and growing the seeds of a fear of the other kind of mindset towards the Fremen. We don't know much about them, except for they have these bright blue eyes because of the spice that they take. And they're dangerous because they don't want us on their planet. And then they go and try to attack our spice harvesters and get in our way. So they're dangerous. They're unreliable. They can't be trusted because they're getting in our way because they are other. Again, here in the work of sci-fi, we see this idea of a fear of the other. It comes up here again, a common theme throughout all these works that we have been looking at. And you already know, if you've listened to the other episodes, that we should not have a fear of the other, but we should have an acceptance of the other. Not necessarily accepting how they live and the lifestyle and sin and all that, but accepting them into God's family. And then once they're accepted, we can get that stuff kind of cleared up and but God accepts all of us into a relationship with him, and then once we're in that relationship, we get those things cleared up. So instead of having a fear for the others, instead of having walls that divide us, we should have bridges that bring us together and, and work to understand and working to be accepting of others into God's family, be accepting them into God's family, not necessarily all that they do, but be accepting of other into God's family, and then once they come and enter into relationship with God, then they can kind of get that other stuff in their life cleaned up and we can go from there. But we don't need to have a fear for the other. In the movie, a big ceremony takes place and it is announced that House Atreides, by order of the emperors, to take control of Arrakis as steward. And Leto Atreides accepts. He says, We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. The emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts. It's interesting here already what Leto wants to do on Arrakis. He talks about peace, and he truly tries to do this throughout the movie as he goes and sends people to try to meet the Fremen, and he wants to work with them and doesn't want to be fighting with them. So he comes here and looks at his mission to House... He looks at House Atreides' mission to Arrakis. It's something more than just, let's go in there and get all the spice and the money that we can, but he actually wants to go in there and wants to be able to to make treaties and to make peace with the Fremen instead of just going in and being at war with them. Uh, I, I like that. I, I like Leto. I think he's he's a good, he is a good duke, uh, a good leader of House of Treaties. But we see that House of Treaties is loyal to the Emperor, even though they know the Emperor doesn't have good intentions in giving Arrakis to House of Treaties. There's some other things going on behind the scenes that the Emperor has in mind here, what he's doing. They know that the Emperor is not up to something good, but they follow the Emperor anyways. And while we're here, has there ever been a good Emperor in science fiction? I mean, if you are an Emperor in sci-fi, are you ever the good guy? Clearly here in Dune, you're not. If you look at Star Wars, you're not. If you are the Emperor, I think that's reserved for somebody who's like not just 
the 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 leader or the king or or the whatever over an area but if you're an emperor in sci-fi it almost seems like it's more on the evil side than on the good side but anyway so they have an emperor here that they're following that's not very good but they have to follow him because they are loyal to the emperor but we friends as christians we serve a good king we serve a good emperor if you will jesus who wants what is truly best for you and for everyone is our good king He's not trying to manipulate you or get you into a bad situation or send you somewhere to destroy you. Jesus is a good king, a king nonetheless, but a good king and a king who is worthy of having us follow him. Someone that we can trust, someone that we can place our hands into, someone that we know has in mind what is best for us and is not trying to lead us into a a, a path that will causes destruction or will cause chaos or, or any of those kinds of things like the emperor here in dune does but we have a good emperor who we can trust and we can follow back to the movie and we meet for the first time duncan idaho the greatest warrior in the galaxy i don't know if they ever say that he's the greatest warrior in the galaxy but i think i will he is duncan is legendary for his fighting and him and paul have a close friendship and paul tells duncan of his Arrakis, Fremen, dreams, visions that he's been having. He's been having visions of going to Arrakis. He's been having visions of the Fremen. He's been having these different things where he looks and he has these experiences and keeps seeing the same girl Fremen over and over. But one of the, and also one of the things that he says that he tells Duncan is that he sees visions of Duncan finding the Fremen, but then he also has visions of Duncan who is dead. Not that the Fremen, not not by the Fremen, but he has a vision of Duncan being dead, and 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 Paul is worried about that, and he tells Duncan that 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 he's worried of what's going to happen if he goes there, and and what it is in these dreams and visions that he's been having, and then Duncan replies, "Dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake, because that's when we make things happen." Duncan says. Dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake because that's when we make things happen. So we know how Duncan feels about these dreams and visions. He doesn't put much stock into them, little to nothing. He doesn't think that they mean anything or have significance because I think Duncan has this attitude or this idea that he is the one who is in control of his life. He is the one who is able to make decisions and that these dreams that Paul is having, these visions that he's having, doesn't necessarily mean that they have to happen just because he's had them. The dreams really don't mean or or have any significance uh, to Duncan because that would mean that, that Duncan is not the one in control, right? Be, being awake, important, everything important happens when we're awake because that's when we make things happen. We're going to make these things happen. We're not going to be worried about dreams. So he doesn't seem to give into this idea of fate or predestination or something like that. Like you see a vision and it must happen. That's not for Duncan. But do dreams ever have meaning in real life? Are dreams ever significant? What is the theology of dreams? I'm actually not sure that I am the right person to be leading this discussion because I don't have dreams. Well, like the I'm um, fall asleep, sleeping kind of dreams. I, I I don't have dreams. Well, maybe I do. Don't they say that everyone has dreams? I'm not really sure about that. But if I do have a dream, if I do dream like everyone does, if that's a thing, I don't know. 
But if I do dream, I don't remember them. I cannot tell you the last time I had a dream and remembered it. Sometimes I wake up and think I had a dream. I'm like, I think I dreamt about something, but I don't remember what it was. But I think I did. And sometimes I wake up and say, oh, I need to write that down. I just had a dream. and I need to remember this about it. or I need to remember that about it or something really interesting has happened. But literally by the time I grab a pen and paper that's sitting right by my bed, right on my desk, my bedside table. But by the time I grab that, I've forgotten it. I, I can't remember what it is. I, I can't remember the last time I've had a dream. I cannot tell you the last dream I had or the last dream that I remember. Although I did have a strong and strange feeling of deja vu this past week and thought maybe there's a glitch in the matrix. But I don't think that has much to do with dreams or visions. That was, I, don't, I don't think that has much to do with anything. But anyway, just a weird feeling. Uh, that's a bonus, I guess. But but I don't remember my dreams. I, I, don't, I don't remember those. I, I, don't, I don't have those as, as far as I know. Paul in the movie, he's not really having the sleeping kind of dreams where he is dreaming that he's falling or dreaming that he's flying or that he showed up to middle school wearing no pants. Those are not the kind of dreams that Paul is having. He's having more of what I would call visions. They appear to be insights into the future, or at least I think that's what they are. And I I think that's what Paul thinks that they are. He sees Duncan dead. He knows that he believes this is a vision into the future. And also believes that if he goes there with Duncan, maybe he can stop this and this vision won't come true. But do dreams in this kind of a, a sense or, or visions, whatever the, that they may be, dreams of the future, visions of the future, do they have any meaning or significance? How are dreams to be interpretive? What is the theology of dreams? Well, when talking about dreams and the meaning and interpretation of dreams, it would be regrettable not to mention Sigmund Freud, who in 1899 wrote the book on interpreting dreams. Literally wrote the book on interpreting dreams. But if this is your first, if this is not your first episode, this will probably not be a surprise to you, but I am not a huge Freud fan. Nonetheless, his work on dreams is really the first of its kind and an influence that is seen today. But just because Freud wrote the book on dream interpretation does not mean that he actually is correct on his dream interpretation. It just is kind of this is one of the first times we really see in the field of psychology some stock being put into the interpretation of dreams and dreams actually having significance and meaning. Of note about Freud's theory of dream interpretation is uh, is the following, which is taken from freud.org.uk and is the Freud Museum London website. So here about a dream interpretation with Freud, we read this. For Freud, every dream is meaningful, no matter how nonsensical it seems or how little of it we remember. Instead of telling his patients what he thought their dreams meant, he invited them to say whatever came to mind in relation to each element of the dream, following their own trains of thought. He encouraged them to relax their critical faculties and to refrain from holding back thoughts that seem unpleasant, trivial, or ridiculous. He called this method free association. The method of free association led Freud to the conclusion that dreams are the disguised fulfillments of repressed infantile wishes. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. 
And to be clear, there are many, many, many within the field of psychology and related fields that disagree with Freud. Freud would say that every dream has meaning and significance. Every dream has meaning and significance is what he would say. I'm not so sure this is the case. But I'm pretty sure that if you look hard enough and long enough for meaning in a dream, you will find it. And if you are going to find your own meaning and interpret your own dreams, as Freud seemed to allow his patients to do in free association, you will probably find meaning and significance to your dream. If you're looking for it, if you're talking through it, if you really want to find something to be able to relate to what you're dreaming or a vision that you may have, whatever it may be, whatever word you want to use there, if you are looking hard enough for an explanation for meaning and significance, you will find it. But if you want your dream to have, so if you want your dream to have meaning, you can make it have meaning for Freud. But does that really actually mean that dreams really do have significance and really do have meaning? If we assign our own meaning, our own significance to dreams, is that really, are we correct in doing that? Is that really what these dreams, what, what, what dreams are all about? I don't necessarily think so. Do all dreams have meaning? Maybe. Can God use dreams to communicate? Does God give visions of people of what the future holds? First, I think there is a danger in limiting what God can or cannot do. So, of course, God could use dreams and visions. But does he? Well, yes. Not only do we see in the Bible God giving people dreams that have significant meaning, you can look to Joseph interpreting dreams in prison in Genesis 40 and 41. There's quite a few different people that God gives dreams to that have significant meaning and Joseph is able to interpret them. So in Genesis 40 and 41, we, we see that. But does God still do that today? Well, first, for many dreams, there have been many people very recently, especially in Middle Eastern countries, who have claimed to have dreams about Jesus. Oftentimes, this is even associated with a film called the Jesus Film, where it's a, a film that is the gospel uh, story and film of Jesus. Well, and before these, the, the Jesus Film is shown in places, there have been many people who have said that I've had somebody appear to me in a dream, and I don't know who it was, and I, they were telling me something, but it doesn't really make sense, and I don't necessarily understand all that's going on, and then they go, and they see the Jesus Film, and the dream they've had is the Jesus that they're seeing on the film. That, that's what Jesus looks like to them in their dream. And then they come and have, have many of them have given their lives to Jesus and, and have started following him and become a Christian because they have dreams of Jesus. And then they see the Jesus film and know that God is speaking to them, communicating to them through, through dreams. So many claim today that God is giving and revealing himself in dreams, and I have no reason to say, no, that's definitely not what God is doing. It seems to be that's a way that God is working in some different places, in some different countries, in the hearts of some people to reveal who he is to them so that they go see this film and have this opportunity and this understanding of who Jesus is and are able to come into relationship with him. I would be a little more skeptical, however, about people claiming to have a vision of the future. That is not to say that God could not do that, but I, I think it's much, much less common for God to communicate today visions of the future. 
As a matter of fact, I might even go as far as to say that all the visions of the future that are going to be given have already been given by God. And that that's a method that he no longer uses to reveal who he is. I think I might even go that far with it because I think that God has already revealed those visions. We have visions of the end times in, in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. We have these visions and we know what is going to happen. And I'm not sure that God uses that method of revelation anymore. But I do know this. If you have a dream or a vision, whatever it is, whatever it may be, and it, go, it goes against what is in the Bible, it goes against what is in Scripture, or it's a new dream, it's a new vision that God has given me some information that's not contained in the Scriptures, and, and I just have some new revelation, I just have some new information to give from this dream or vision. If that is your dream or vision, goes against the Bible, or gives you new information, or gives you new kind of insight, or new inspiration by God, if that is your dream or vision, it is not from God. I am certain of that. That God is not going to give you some new or special dream or vision that goes beyond or goes against his word. That doesn't happen. So do dreams have meanings? Sometimes, but not always. I feel fairly comfortable in saying that if you wake up and have had a dream and you aren't sure what it means or you aren't sure what the significance of it is, maybe it really has no meaning or significance at all. If the meaning's not clear, don't go on an endless search for meaning because we can assign meaning to anything. Now, maybe you do have a, a dream and, and you think it might mean something or it might have some kind of significance and it's just a feeling that you, you don't know what it is and just a feeling that there might be something to that, then go talk to a, a pastor or a trusted Christian friend or your Bible study leader or a small group, whoever it may be, an accountability partner. Whoever it may be, go and talk to them about it and see what they have to say and see if there's any maybe kind of insight to be gained from that. But if you go on an endless search for meaning in dreams, as Freud seemed to do, you will always find that meaning, even if it's not correct. So do dreams sometimes have meaning? Yes. Do they always? No. You need to be able to use discernment and talk to a trusted Christian friend, mentor, pastor, whoever that may be. But we also need to remember that if dreams or visions that are given, that go against Scripture, that go beyond Scripture, that bring a new revelation, those dreams or visions are not from God. He's not giving you some kind of new revelation or new information, some kind of new insight. That doesn't happen anymore. We have God's, God's word for that. The, the Scriptures are the Scriptures, and God's not going to reveal something to you that goes against them. That's not who God is, and that's not how God works. So sometimes dreams have, have meaning, yes, but do they always? I don't think so. So we need to be able to use discernment and uh, t talk to a trusted friend if you're having dreams or having some kind of vision, whatever kind of word you want to use there, and you're not exactly sure what it means. But don't go on an endless search for, for meaning, because if you do, you will find it, and you will give things meaning that maybe they had never were intended to have. Back to the movie, and Paul wants to go to Arrakis with Duncan, but Leto will not allow it. There's too much political danger. As the Emperor has set up House Atreides and House Harkonnen to go to war because the spice was taken from one house and given 
to another. So again here, I join the Fremen in asking, why would the emperor do this? Why would the emperor do this? Uh, I'm not sure we ever receive exactly a clear answer, but maybe we'll try to get there. A treatise does not want a lot, and uh, a treatise does want an alliance with the Fremen. He doesn't want to be at war with them, so he is going to send Duncan on ahead of them to try to, for him to try to meet the Fremen and try to build a bridge of relationships with them so that they don't have to be at war with them. We also see that uh, Paul is training and fighting, and he has a force field that he can activate to be around himself so that he doesn't get hurt, but we learn that the slow blade penetrates the force field. So if you have something moving fast, it's going to stop it, but if you move something slow, it can get through the force field. Then we cut to Getty Prime, the homeworld of House Harkonnen, and we meet Lord Baron the leader of House Harkonnen, and all the Harkonnens are upset about no longer being on Arrakis. And Rabin, the nephew of Lord Baron, asks, how can the Emperor do this to them? How can he take all that we have built? And the question Baron answers, he, he answers the question with, with this. When is a gift not a gift? The Atreides' voice is rising. And the emperor is a jealous man, a dangerous, jealous man. So, why is the emperor jealous that House Atreides is, is rising? What is rising about House Atreides? If anything, I would think that House Harkonnen would be, would be rising, and House Harkonnen would be a problem for the emperor because they're richer than he is now. They've been in control of the spice on Arrakis for decades. They've, they've been there for a very long time taking control of this and getting a lot of money and getting a lot of power and influence. And what has Atreides done to be such a threat to the emperor? I'm not sure we're really given us specifics on this. I mean, people seem to like and seem to respect House Atreides. They seem to be gathering some more influence throughout the galaxy, but they don't seem to be, they don't seem to be much of a threat. It's not like they're coming for the emperor. It's not like they want to overthrow anything. It's not like they're, so, so it's just so, why is the emperor forcing them to go to war and be at war with another house? I'm not exactly sure. But the baron says that the emperor is a jealous man, a dangerous and jealous man. And I would suggest that those two things go hand in hand. It's his jealousy that makes him dangerous, or maybe it's his, yeah, it's his jealousy that makes him dangerous. And it would seem he is jealous of the influence or power of House Atreides because House Harkonnen's the richer one. House Harkonnen has a pretty great set of, set of you know, warriors and is set up pretty well, uh, was set up pretty well to trade the spice. So, so it, but those things don't seem to bother the emperor. So, so he must be more power hungry more hungry for influence and power and prestige than he is hungry for money. But why is jealousy dangerous? And what makes jealousy a problem? Well, if jealousy is a feeling of resentment against someone because of that person's success, advantage, position, etc., then jealousy leads to division and not to unity. Jealousy leads to rivals, not teammates. Jealousy leads to hate, not love. Which is why jealousy is so dangerous for people and is dangerous here for the emperor. He is 
he is jealous of House Atreides. He he wants their success. He wants their position. He wants their influence. He wants their power. And I'm not sure that that the emperor doesn't already have that, but he believes that he doesn't. So that's what makes him a jealous man because he wants what others have. Even if he already has what they want, which he might, right? He's the emperor. He's got more influence than Leto Atreides, I would assume. He's the emperor. But he wants what Leto has. He's jealous for that. And because he's jealous for others, it is dangerous. Jealousy leads to hate, leads to rivals, leads to division. And in this case, even leads to war. In the movie, we cut to Lady Jessica talking to Paul. And we see... Uh, a lady who's called the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mokim, who was Jessica's teacher at the Ben Jesuit School and is the current truth-sayer to the emperor. Now, a truth-sayer is pretty much what it sounds like. It's someone who can tell when the truth is being told or, or someone who can tell when they are being lied to so they know if you're truthful or if you're, if you're lying. But before Paul goes to see the Reverend Mother that, that he's supposed to, he meets with the house doctor, Dr. Yui, who says that Paul is healthy and Dr. Yui will, will come into play later. Paul meets with the Reverend Mother and she uses the voice on him. She says, come here, and Paul slides across the floor to her. She says, kneel, and Paul kneels. And Paul's pretty upset about this. How dare you use the voice on me, he says. And then the Reverend Mother puts Paul's hand into a box and then holds a needle to his neck and tells him it's a poison needle. It's instant death if he is pricked. Whoever these Ben Jesuit are, whatever their religion is, this is not a good religion. I think it's actually starting to look more and more like a cult than anything else. So if Paul removes his hand from the box, he dies. That's pretty intense, and that's that is not setting the groundwork for a good religion, a religion that is worth following. So his hand is in this box. If he removes it, he dies. And what is in the box? Pain. It is pain. Paul asks the Reverend Mother, why are you doing this? And her reply is, an animal caught in a trap will gnaw off its own leg to escape. What will you do? Further confirmation uh, here that the Ben Jesuit is not a good religion to follow, if that's what they are. They seem to be, she's called the Reverend Mother, they seem to be some kind of religion, order, cult, I think is really the right word for this. Not, not a good, not a good, not, not good to be following. Paul is trying to manage the pain, his hand is in there, and his mother is uh, outside the room. He's, uh, so Paul is in here alone with the, the Reverend Mother and Jessica, his mom, is outside the room, and, and, and she seems to know what's going on, even though she can't see anything. And then, from outside the room, she says this. I must not fear. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings obliteration. And I'll face my fear, and I'll permit it to pass over and through me. I would say that's probably the best quote from this movie, especially this line, fear is the mind killer. Now, we have talked about fear before, but with this quote, it's worth discussing again. Is fear really the mind killer? And what does that even mean? I think that this is saying that fear negatively influences the mind. 
the way we think, the way we act, our thought process, our reasoning, all those kinds of things things are negatively impacted by fear. In a very interesting article on the University of Minnesota's website, they list these factors of chronic fear. And they say that chronic fear is living under constant threat or a perceived threat. So you're living, you have fear and you are afraid that you're That there's a threat, there is either a threat that you are living under that you are fearful of, or you believe that there is a threat that you are living under and you are fearful of that. So that's how they define chronic fear. Living under a constant threat or living under constant perceived threat. But here are some of the impacts of chronic fear. One of them is memory. And this is what the website says on the University of Minnesota. Fear can impair formation of long-term memories and cause damage to certain parts of the brain, such as the hippocampus. This makes it even more difficult to regulate fear and can leave a person anxious most of the time. To someone in chronic fear, the world looks scary and their memories confirm that. Another one is brain brain, brain processing and reactivity. Here's what it says. Fear can interpret processes in our brains that allow us to regulate emotions, read nonverbal cues, and other information presented to us, reflect before acting, and act ethically. This impacts our thinking and decision-making in negative ways, leaving us susceptible to intense emotions and impulsive reactions. Of all these effects can leave us unable to act appropriately. So basically, according to this study by the University of Minnesota, fear really is the mind killer. Which is why fear is not a good motivation for relationship. Fear is not a good motivation for relationship, any relationship, and that is including a relationship with God. Fear is not a good motivator for that. Which is why we read in 1 John 4, 13-18. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. There is no fear in love. There is no need to live as feeling though there is a constant threat of harm when there is love. Fear drives out love, which is why fear is the mind killer. But see, what we really need to do is realize that there is no fear in love. So if we are loving, we can drive out fear with love instead of fear coming in and driving out love with with fear. There is no fear in love. There's no need to live as though when, when, when we are in a loving relationship, there's no reason to be living 
as though we are under constant threat or that we're going to be punished or that we're going to be harmed. There is no reason for that. That is not what love does. That is not what a loving relationship is. So perfect love drives out fear because we no longer have to be afraid of punishment. We no longer have to feel as though we're in danger. We no longer have to feel as though something bad is going to happen or or that we have a threat because love does not do that. So love drives out fear because fear is the mind killer. And love does not want to kill your mind. That's not what love is about. Love wants you to thrive and to be healthy and and to, to be able to think and to be able to process and to be able to form good memories. That's what love wants you to do, which is why it drives out fear. And fear is the mind killer. Paul is able to resist the pain in the movie and he doesn't pull his hand away. And this is all a test as the Reverend Mother tells Paul, like sifting sand through a screen, we sift people. If you had not, if you had been unable to control your impulses like an animal, we could not let you live. You inherit too much power. Whoa. Again, the Reverend Mother is someone who I would not want to follow and someone whose cult I would want nothing to do with. She is not worth someone who is following and these Ben Jesuit people, this cult that it is, I am liking less and less. But Paul's inherited power because he's Jessica's son, not just because he is Leto's son, but because he is Jessica and she is part of the Ben Jesuit. And Paul does manage to, to, to show an incredible amount of self-control here. He deals with the pain. He doesn't remove his hand. He does not let the fear kill his mind. And in doing so, he displays self-control. Self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5:22 through 23, which is what we read here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Self-control, one of the fruit of the Spirit. So self-control is evident, evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And what is really interesting here is that self-control happens not necessarily through the self, not just through you, but it happens through the Holy Spirit working in you. You can be self-controlled because you are Holy Spirit-controlled. Working in tandem with the Holy Spirit, self-control is possible. Not giving in to every impulse, not giving in to every desire, not just doing whatever we want and not being able to control any, anything that we do, but just giving in to all impulses and desires. We don't have to live that way when the Holy Spirit is working through us and we're working with the Holy Spirit and together in tandem, there can be self-control. Why Paul was put to the test is because Jessica had been training him and she wasn't supposed to be. She, she was not supposed to be training him. As a matter of fact, she was only supposed to have girls. She was only supposed to give birth to daughters and to train them, but she had a son. And she decided to train his son. And the Reverend Mother says that she has done this in ignorance, hoping that she would give birth to the Kwisatz Haderach. Haderach? However you would say that. Um, that's a... Fun one to say, though, huh? Quizats Haderach. Haderach? What is the Quizats Haderach? The Messiah? A Savior? The One? Well, it's something like that, and we'll get into that more. But there are prophecies about this Quizats Haderach, and in that way, and in others, 
The Kwisatz Haderach, whoever he may be, is a Christ figure. Someone who is fulfilling prophecy. Someone who is coming to... Well, we'll see what else they're coming to do. But somebody who is coming to bring peace, unity, lead to a better future, that kind of thing. He, but fulfilling this prophecy, this Kwisatz Haderach, is a Christ figure. Because Jesus also fulfills prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of every messianic prophecy. The Reverend Mother also tells us that the Ben Jesuit have plans that are measured in centuries. That they're in it for the long haul. They're playing the long game here. She also says that they have other prospects for who might be the Kwisatz Haderach. They have other prospects for this other than just Paul. So if Paul doesn't work out, no big deal because we got other prospects. Well, friends, there is no other prospect for salvation other than Jesus. In John 14, 5-7, we read this. Thomas said to them, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's what Jesus says here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The the Ben Jesuit might have other prospects for their Messiah, for their Kwisatz Haderach, but there are no other prospects for salvation other than Jesus Christ. Back to the movie, and Paul hears that he could be the one, and he asks his mom, exactly what does that mean, and, and what is that? And what we learn is that the Ben Jesuit have been mixing bloodlines with the great houses in an attempt to bring forth the one, an attempt to make it so that the Kwisatz Haderach is born. And we also hear this about the Kwisatz Haderach. He will have a mind powerful enough to bridge space and time, past and future, who can help lead us into a better future. So we see maybe Paul fits some of that in some way with his dreams and visions. Maybe he is having being, having some kind of bridge to the past and the future. But what stands out to me uh, is really how the Ben Jesuit are taking things into their own hands in an attempt to produce a savior. The Ben Jesuit, they've been mixing bloodlines. They've been attempting to bring forth this Kwisatz Haderach. They want to make sure that he is born. So they're going out and they're making a plan and they're formulating this and they're following through with this plan to try to get their Savior to be born. They are relying on their own abilities. They are relying on their own methods. They are relying on their own strength and power and knowledge and ability. Their hope is in their own plan of actions. They are relying on no one but themselves. If you are relying on your own plan of salvation, it will not work. Because you can't save yourself. Jesus has already done that. Jesus has already paid the price and already sends you that invitation to accept the salvation that he offers. But you have to accept it. We cannot save ourselves. The Ben Jesuit are trying to produce a savior of some kind so that they can use the savior to lead them into a bright future, but they're relying on their own selves and their own plans to do that. They're not relying on God and his plan. 
which is what we need to be doing, not trying to save ourselves through our own methods, ways, knowledge, or power, but accepting and believing and knowing that Jesus has already died for us to be able to save us, and all we need to do is accept that invitation that he offers to enter into his family. That's what we need to do. Accept that invitation and enter into that relationship with him because he has already done the work of salvation. We don't have to. Back to the movie and House of Treaties moves. House of Treaties arrives on Arrakis. And we see Gurney Halleck, one of the guards for Duke Leto. He is also helps in the training of Paul and different other things. But, but we see Gurney and he is... What I thought he was reading was some kind of scripture. We can't exactly see what it is, but it looks to be some kind of holy book is what I was thinking it was. We're not told what it is, but he's often reading this and, and, and quoting from it. It was my understanding through the movie, but I wasn't exactly sure what this was. So I, I kind of looked to see a little bit more what this could be. And according to dune.fandom.com, the Dune wiki, Gurney is reading from ancient epic tales and would frequently find an appropriate verse from these tales for almost every situation. Indeed, at times his quotations are so appropriate they were almost prophetic. So it's not a book of holy writings or scriptures as I first thought it was. It's just this book of uh, of ancient epic tales that he frequently quotes from. So I thought there was some kind of uh, relationship there, perhaps with the scriptures he was reading to the Bible and thought there might be some connections there, but doesn't appear to be. These are just ancient epic tales that he is reading from. When Paul walks out of the ship on Arrakis, though, the Fremen are pointing at him and chanting Lisan al-Gaib, which is literally translated as voice from the outworld. But Jessica tells Paul that it is their name for the Messiah. So, so the, the Fremen are pointing at Paul, calling him the Messiah. He's coming into Dune, he's coming in here to Arrakis, and they are greeting him as the Messiah. It almost seems very Palm Sunday-like, as Jesus is greeted as he comes into Jerusalem. Not quite as much. There isn't any palms put down. There isn't a whole lot of necessarily worship or any, any of those kinds of things. They're just pointing at him and calling him this, the, the Savior, calling him the Messiah. That's how that's how they're welcoming him. However, Paul is also told this about the Fremen. Don't be fooled by the welcome. They follow their old master's rules. Mandatory attendance. That's Harkonnen love out there. One line there that stood out to me. They follow their old master's rules. That's what they're following. That's what they know. That's who the Fremen are and what they have known. So they're just used to that. So they're continuing to do what they've known. Friends, the old master for Christians is sin. Romans 6 and 7, continuously Paul writes about being slaves to sin, being held in bondage to sin, using that kind of language where we have been held captive to sin and sin has ruled over us and has been a master of sorts. But sin is the old master. And we don't have to follow the old master's rules. In Romans 6, 1 through 7, we'll read the start of that here. It says this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through the baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Of course, talking about a metaphorical death, death to the old nature, to to put to, to death that old sinful nature that is within us and to, to come to new life in Christ. That we don't have to that we don't have to be masters to sin any that we don't have to be slaves to the master of sin anymore. That we can break free from that. That, that we don't have to be controlled by sin. That's the old master. But are we still sometimes maybe following the old master's rules just as the Fremen are? Maybe we are. Maybe sometimes we do that, but we need to remember that that sin is not the one who is the master of us, that we have been set free from sin, from that slavery, from that bondage to sin. We've been set free, and sin is the old master, and we don't need to follow the old master's rules anymore because we have a new master, a new master who is good, who is gracious, and who wants the best for us. And of course, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. We cannot have two masters. So who, who, who are you following? Whose master's rules are you following? Are you following the old master of sin? Or are you following the new master, who is Jesus? Back to the movie, and Paul comes across a grove of pine trees in the desert and encounters a gardener. The gardener's taking care of the trees, and the gardener explains that each tree needs the equivalent of what five people drink of water a day to survive. And Paul asks, should these trees be removed then? But the gardener says no. But the gardener should have said yes. Water is hard to come by on Arrakis. People need it to survive. Each day, these trees are taking up the equivalent of what five people could drink, so there's more people every day that could be alive, that wouldn't have to struggle as much, that wouldn't be as much heartache if these trees would just be removed and the water given to something that it would be more worthwhile. But they say no because the, the, the trees have meaning and have significance and there's really, I don't think, a great reason given for why the trees remain. And then Paul is in his room and there's a small mechanical bug that enters and tries to kill him with some kind of poison, like stinger is what I assume it is. But Paul notices it right away. It's pretty impressive how quickly Paul notices this little bug flying around, probably a little smaller than like a dragonfly or something. Um, so, so it's there flying around and Paul spots it right away. He, he notices it. He's able to eliminate this threat. And then the, uh, operator of this mechanical bug is found and he was actually cemented into a wall six weeks ago when the Harkonnen left. He was cemented into that wall with the sole purpose to kill 
Paul Atreides. So the Harkonnens are still pretty upset about not being there. Left somebody behind going as far as to cement them into a wall. And Leto is not too happy about that. And wants any spies that may still be on Arrakis for House Harkonnen to be brought to him. Then we uh, cut to the the reverend, uh, the mother reverend, with a the, she meets with a man, but then she also, there's a man that's there. We're not I don't know if we're told his name. Doesn't matter a whole lot. Uh, there there's a man that's there, but then she also meets with the Lord Baron. She is meeting with him, the leader of House Harkonnen. So we kind of clearly see here whose side the reverend mother is on. She tells Lord Baron that the Emperor is going to strengthen them with his uh, Sardaukar army. That they will kill House Atreides. They're gonna, the Emperor is going to give him his army and they're going to go back and take over Arrakis and defeat House Atreides again. Why is he doing this? I'm not sure it all makes a whole lot of sense. But anyway, the Reverend Mother tells uh, Lord Baron that Jessica and Paul have their protection, have the Ben Gesserit's protection, and that they need to exile them and not kill them. And Lord Baron agrees. He said that he would never violate the sanctity of the, the Mother Reverend in their order. So Lord Baron gives his word, but I'm not really sure that his word means very much. Not really sure that's someone who can be trusted. Not really sure that's somebody who you want to be making a deal with. Because I wouldn't be surprised if he did not hold up his end of the deal. Actually, after the Reverend Mother leaves, Lord Baron says that he plans uh, that all of House Atreides will be dead. He's just going to let the desert do the work for Paul and for Jessica. He won't physically kill them. They'll just throw them in the middle of the desert and let... The, the desert on Arrakis do their work. So, we also see something that's interesting here as the uh, Lord Baron uh, says, you know, this is my desert, my Arrakis, my dune. And then he floats and flies in the air. He's got some kind of pack or something on his back that would appear that enables him uh, to fly, which is something that will be of importance later. And then we cut to a House Atreides meeting, and uh, we find out that the Harkonnens have destroyed equipment so that Atreides cannot produce spice, and there's a lot of trouble there. But then Duncan, they meet up with him, who went there early to meet with the Fremen, and he says that there's actually been millions of Fremen that live on the planet, even though the Harkonnens thought there's only 50,000 or so. There's actually millions of them, and they fight like demons is what Duncan says. And then we are introduced to the leader of the Fremen, or at least the leader of, of one of the villages of the Fremen, Stigler. Uh, Stigler, he spits. And some people think that's pretty offensive at first, but what he's doing is he's offering his own moisture as a sign of peace and honor. It's what he has to offer. Moisture comes at a premium in the desert, and if you are willing to spit, with someone else, you're offering something that is very important and very significant to your very survival. So it's a uh, something that would be offensive to us, but something that to the Fremen who are in the desert uh, is actually a sign of, of respect 
and a sign uh, of of peace um, and honor. And then Stigler also tells tells Paul, "I recognize you," which is a really weird line to me. So Stigler also having these visions is he? Is there some kind of connect? What's what's the connection there? I I don't exactly know, but I thought that was really, really interesting. Then we see spice harvesting with the imperial ecologist from uh, the empire. She's supposed to be a, a go-between uh, with the planet handoff. So the planet being handed off from the Harkonnens to the treaty. She is sent there as a go-between between these two houses as the house as the planet is handed off. So she is Doctor Kynes. Uh, and then uh, she compliments Paul. So they put on this suit that allows them to conserve and reuse moisture in the desert. And Paul puts on his suit perfectly. Something that he shouldn't know how to do as someone who's never had one of those suits before. And she asks asks him, how did you know to put it on this way? And he says, it just seemed like the right way. And then Dr. Dr. Kine says, you shall know your ways as though born to them. Some prophecy here that we have there that this seems to be that's what she's quoting there some kind of prophecy about the uh the lisan al gaib the the messiah of the fremen i I take that to be that what that is what that is, so there is a another reference there to the Messiah and to fulfilling a prophecy there about the Messiah. she says that he shall know your ways as though born to them even though the implication there being even though he wasn't born to them he will still know your ways we also see harvest spice harvesters in action for the first time on the surface of the desert there go along these big things that go along gathering all the spice from the surface of the desert and the worms giant huge worms are still on the attack and uh the, what they do is they have the, the spice harvesters on the the ground that are picking that up, but then they also have planes, spaceships, flying above that are looking for worms coming in, as you can see the dust cloud they make when they burrow along the, the top of the, the surface there. So they're looking for worms, and they spot one, and then there's, you know, something comes in and hooks onto the harvester and picks it up and flies away with it so that the worms don't eat it. This all seems like a bit of a questionable plan to me. Like you have interstellar space travel and the best that you can do to try to save a harvester is to come down with some clamps and to pick it up with these big balloon, like to pick it up with big balloons and float it out of the way. Like this is the best you can do. But anyway, of course something goes wrong. One of the connectors on that doesn't connect and Lido goes to save the people on the harvester. It's a 21 person crew. And since the harvester can't be saved because the connection isn't made they have to go down and save the people and i really like that the leader of the house of atreides going down to save the stranded people he's putting his own life in danger he is showing love he's showing selflessness and what he's really showing here is something that i would call servant leadership where he is willing to serve others even at the risk of putting his own life on the line but he is willing to do that because he is a leader so some leaders would look and say, well, this is, I can't do this. This would be dangerous and I could get hurt. That's not servant leadership. But what Leto has is, all right, they're stranded. They're going to die. This big worm's going to eat them. Let's go down there and save them. Let's go down there and do what we need to do for these people 
even if we're putting our own selves in danger. So I like that example there of that love and selflessness that he has and that servant leadership that he displays. On the surface of the planet, Paul gets a taste of spice for the first time and he hears voices and one says, Quizats Hatterash awakens. The crew, of, of course, is saved rather dramatically, but the harvester is lost and Dr. Kynes, uh, she gives a blessing and uh, Leto is worried about what will happen if he cannot get spice production back on track. And then the same doctor, Dr. Wellington Ua, examines Paul and explains that the spice is a psychoactive chemical and Paul is sensitive. But Paul knows, he believes that it was a vision that he had, not merely just a reaction to the spice, but he believes, again, it's a vision that he sees is giving him insight into the future. And in this, he, he sees a, a girl, a Fremen girl, and he kisses her, but she stabs him. Paul doesn't know what it means, doesn't understand, knows that it wasn't his death uh, that, that he saw, but does know some things that he shouldn't. So he sees this girl, stabs him, he knows that he hasn't seen his death, he doesn't believe that, but he does know some things that he shouldn't know. One of those is that Lady Jessica is pregnant. And Lady Jessica just found out, so she barely knows, and Paul shouldn't know, but yet he still does. He still has that ability to know. So what we can see there is perhaps he's fulfilling some more of this Kwisatz Haderach um, uh, prophecy there, being able to look and bridge space and time to bridge past and future to know things that uh, he shouldn't know. Cut to Seleucia Secundes, the Imperial Army planet, and there's some kind of human sacrifice going on. It looks like quite disturbing. But there's someone there that's with the army that's there, the, the Imperial, the Emperor's army, a man named Bashar, and he asks uh, Lord Baron's assistant, well, I, I believe is who that is, uh, why they are needed because the, uh, the, Her the Harkonnens outnumber House Atreides. But it explained that Atreides armies are the best. So maybe that is another reason the Emperor feels so so jealous and so um, in such danger with House Atreides. Because they are the best. But uh, Basher doesn't care because they are the Emperor's blades. The, they are the ones who are the best. It's not Atreides who's the best. They believe that they are. Back on Arrakis, Leto asks is the ben, if the Ben Jesuit will protect Paul if anything happens because Leto knows that he is in danger. And here we find out that Leto and Jessica are not married. This is when we first find that out. We already talked about that. But here he tells her, I should have married you. I should have married you. But then we cut to House Atreides being attacked. The guards to Leto's door are attacked and killed, and Leto gets up, sees the guards down, calls for security, nothing happens. He turns on his shield, but it doesn't protect him from a dart as he is shot, and it, as it, as it goes, the, the shield, the force shield stops it, but then it's going slower, and it penetrates, and it, it uh, sticks in his back, and he falls to the ground. He looks up, and he sees Dr. Yue, and we learn that the shield to the city has come down, that they are being attacked, that all their equipment and ships are being destroyed, and then Gurney and others walk 
into battle. It is war with Atreides and the Harkonnens and Sardaukar, and House Atreides is overpowered. The doctor, Dr. Yue, apologizes to Leto. He says that he has made a bargain with Lord Baron. How much can that really be trusted? Making a bargain with Lord Baron. Again here, we see somebody who's going to him, who's who's trusting and relying on him that he will remain true to his word and be somebody that you can actually negotiate with, but you can't trust him. You can't trust what the Lord Baron is saying or saying what he's going to do. You can't negotiate with someone like that who's not going to be true to their word. You just can't. There is no negotiating with somebody like that because if they're not remaining true, then, then no matter what the negotiation is that you make, it doesn't matter because that's not a real negotiation if they can't be trusted to hold up their end of the bargain. So the doctor should not have trusted him, and we learn cannot trust him very much. But Leto does ask the doctor why. And Dr. Doctor, uh, Dr. Yui says he had no choice, that the Harkonnens had his wife and that they were torturing her and if he turns over Leto to them that they will uh that they'll set her free that, that he can buy her freedom and Leto will be the price for that however uh, the doctor still wants to help paul still doesn't feel great about doing this but feels like he had to and then he also gives Leto a poison filled tooth that he can that, that can kill a whole room full of people if Leto just bites down on it. So if he gets in a whole lot of trouble, that can be his last act of resistance to bite down on this tooth. So there seems to be for some a moral dilemma for the doctor. What should he have done? Personally, I don't see much of a moral dilemma for the doctor here because I understand why he would want to save his wife, why You'd want her to stop being tortured and to be set free. I understand that. I get that. And I get maybe even, I understand why that would cause him to want to turn on Leto to save his wife. I get that. Intellectually, I understand it. Even if I'm, I'm not saying it's morally correct. I'm just saying I would understand that process and that thinking for it. However, I don't think Dr. Yue really had much of a dilemma or choice at all because of who he is negotiating with. If he is negotiating with Lord Baron, who cannot be trusted, who doesn't, who you don't know what he's going to do, who's someone who you you just can't rely on what he's going to say, somebody you can't bargain with that. Doctor Yue has no choice here, no choice, and the because he can't trust who he's bargaining with, and it does come back to to get him as we will see. He should not have made this bargain because it was a bad bargain, not because. Uh, of the terms that were involved in it it's a bad bargain because who he is bargaining with so we shouldn't have done it then we also see the palm trees are burning and that uh, the harkonnens are killing uh, people from house of treaties that they have taken that are unarmed that would be like prisoners of war they're just killing them and then enter duncan idaho it's easy to see what sets him apart as a warrior as he just unleashes a frenzy upon these people. But we also see that Paul and Lady Jessica have been captured. The Harkonnens, they've taken them, they're in a ship, and they just plan to go and drop them somewhere in the desert. That is their plan. And one asks them, why not just kill them? And one of the Harkonnens says, why don't we just kill them and say we dropped them in the desert? But then another one says because they could have to talk to a truth sayer and they don't want to 
they, they want to be able to tell the truth. So one of the Harkonnens is deaf, and Jessica signs that to Paul because Jessica is has is gagged and uh, can't speak. But they kind of have a sign language symbols that they talk to uh, each other through this. So she symbols that one of them is deaf, which would mean that the voice is not going to work on him because uh, he cannot hear. And then we see that Duncan steals a ship, and then we go back to being with um, Lady Jessica and Paul. And Paul goes to, and, and Paul tries to use the voice, and it actually works this time. Paul is able to use the voice, and he makes one of the Harkonnen kill another one. Um, makes the Harkonnen set Jessica, take the gag out of her mouth, and then she uses the voice really well. Makes one Harkonnen kill another one and set them free. So Paul and Jessica become free, but their ship is disabled. And they look out the the window and see just total destruction from the Emperor's army and also from House Harkonnen, as we see again here on an on-screen depiction that war is hell. We see that here. In the last episode, we talked about a just war theory. This war that is being fought would certainly not fit the just war theory criteria. This is a war that is being raged solely over land and resources, and that is never a reason that is justifiable to start a war. So the war that we see here is not a just war. And then Leto wakes, and the Baron is there, and the Baron is eating... And he is quite gluttonous, we would say. He's there, and uh, Leto wakes up, and, and the Baron is there just being gluttonous. So he also appears to be very much gluttonous in, in all areas of his life, the, the Baron does. Now, gluttony is usually defined as habitual greed or excess in eating, but people can be gluttonous in other areas of their lives as well, I would argue. The Baron has gluttony for money for power, for position, for status, for fame, but also for food as well. We see that here. And when I saw this, it reminded me of Philippians 3, verses 17 through 20. Here's what we read. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their God is their stomach. Whoa. Now here in Philippians, when Paul writes that, being ruled by one's stomach was a phrase used to describe fleshly indulgences such as culinary gluttony, but also here in this within this time it was also used to as as something for sexual promiscuity as well to describe that. To this phrase, their God is their stomach. So what what that is is just giving into those primal kind of urges or instincts or whatever, however you might want to say that. So you want food, you're just going to eat all the food you want. You want sex, you're just going to have all the, the sex you want. You want money, you're just going to go get all the money you want no matter what you have to do with it. 
And talking about those kinds of things, those kind of things that we just long for, that we just kind of yearn for, that we see here that the Baron seems to have no self-control over those. But Paul, as we talked about earlier, seems to be one who does have self-control. So one is self-controlled and the other is not. So this phrase was used to criticize those whose God is their stomach because they chased temporary pleasures while neglecting eternal reward. They chase temporary pleasures while neglecting eternal reward, and that sounds like it might be a commentary on the culture in America in 2022. Chasing temporary pleasures and neglecting eternal reward. So what about you? Today is your God, your stomach, or is the Holy Spirit working in your life and that you have self-control? And are able to be spirit-controlled, which allows you to have self-control. So here we see also that Dr. Yue asks the Baron to deliver his wife from her agony. And we should have saw this coming. The Baron says, uh, I said I would set her free and that you could join her. And then he, then uh, Dr. Yue is killed. So Dr. Yue betrays Leto for absolutely nothing. For absolutely nothing. Dr. Yue had no choice. Had no choice but to remain loyal to Leto because he could not trust those who he was bargaining with. He could not trust them that they would be faithful in what they said they would do and that they would remain true to their word. And when you can't trust who you're bargaining with, you cannot, you can't make that deal. There is no deal to made. And here, Dr. Yue, the deal that he's made, bad deal, turns on his friend. He's no longer loyal to him. And all he gets rewarded with is his wife being killed and him being killed. So then Baron also tells Leto that his son and concubine are dead and that his house has fallen. And Baron leans in then to try to hear something that Leto is saying. And Leto says, here I am, here I remain. And then Leto bites into the tooth and poison is released. And it appears that everyone in the room has died. But then we cut to Paul and he has his father's ring. They've crashed on the surface of the planet but they're okay they survive through that and then uh, paul has his father's ring but he does not have the right supplies to survive the desert and um, then we go back to the room and the leto is in and, and leto and everyone in the room appears to be dead that's what we see and that's what it looks like and then dr kimes and duncan they meet and Dr. Kynes tells Duncan that she is commanded to say nothing, to see nothing. Duncan says the emperor sent us here to die, but she says, I've been commanded to say nothing and to see nothing. See nothing and say nothing. That is not a great moral code to live by. So she's been sent here by the emperor. She kind of probably knows some things are going on that shouldn't maybe be going on. but. Even if she knows and sees these things, she's been commanded to say nothing and to see nothing. 
Instead, what we should have is a say and see or see and say kind of morality where if we see something that is wrong, then we should say something about that. Then we should speak up about that to speak out against injustices and wrongs and things that have happened that are a way that they should not be. To have a see and say nothing is not a very good moral code to live by. I'm not a fan of that one. Then we go back to the room where Leto died in, and we see that the Baron is still alive. He has been able to levitate, and he is up next to a um, vent in the room and is, is breathing through that. And although the poison seems to have affected him some, he is still alive. And then Paul, we cut back to Paul. He's on the surface of the, the planet still, so he's still, so he, you know, he's having some more experience with the spice. And he has a vision of Fremen fighting the Emperor's army and winning, and um, he, you know, he has this, quite, quite this vision here. Um, that he says that there's a, a holy war spreading across the universe like an unquenchable fire. So the Fremen are fighting, the Emperor's men and winning, Paul has blue eyes, he's one of the Fremen that is fighting, and he says that's the future that is coming. And he talks about a holy war spreading across the universe like unquenchable fire. But how is this a holy war? And what makes it a holy war? But so, so here's some more of what is said between Jessica and Paul in this scene. Jessica says, Paul, you're scared. I can see it. Please tell me, what do you fear? And Paul says, somebody help me, please. It's coming. I see a holy war spreading across the universe like unquenchable fire, a warrior religion that waves the Atreides banner in my father's name, fanatical legions worshiping at the shrine of my father's skull, a war in my name, everyone's shouting my name. And then Jessica says, Paul Atreides, you are your father's son, you are my son, you are the Duke Paul Atreides, you know who you are. And then Paul uses the voice on his mother, get off me. And she does. You did this to me. You Ben Jesseret made me a freak, is what he says. And then Paul cries and they hug and Paul says, my father is dead. But what makes this a holy war? What? What? What what is a holy war? Um, what should, uh, sh- should there be a holy war? What, what, what goes into that? What, what makes a holy war? Quite simply, a holy war is a war that is declared or waged in support of a religious cause. So there's some kind of religious cause here that Paul sees people fighting throughout the universe and fighting in his name. And I, I guess uh, maybe that's some more, um, some more indication that he is the Kwisatz Shatterach, that, that that's who he is, that, that he is this Messiah, and that they are waging some kind of war on some kind of religious cause that he has. Although what that is, we don't exactly know what that means. We, we can't be certain uh, right now at this point. So we'll probably have to wait till Dune Part 2 to find out what that is and what the cause is and why this is a holy war, because we do not find that out here in this movie and then we eventually see that uh a a ship is coming and they meet duncan idaho he's on it duncan is still alive and also dr kynes is with him 
So Dr. Kynes, uh, forbidden to say anything by the Emperor, yet still wants to help and still wants to help Paul. Even though she's been directed not to say or see anything, she still is willing to help. So Kynes takes them to an old ecological system where they, at one point, were going to try to to, to reform Arrakis and make it into something that was not a desert, something that was lush and green and water and all that. So there's a station there that's meant to be used for that. But then they discovered spice. So they no longer needed to reform the planet and to make it into something lush and green and beautiful because they found the spice and they wanted that. And that was more valuable than uh, more, more valuable, had more reason to do that than um, than, than to just come in and, and take all this. It was more valuable to take all the spice than it was to reform the planet. So uh, Paul asks, what did the great houses fear most? What has happened here? The, the Sardaukar. And he talks about how they can only remain strong if they stand together. They only have a, a chance if they keep together. And he asks Kynes if he'll, she'll tell about what has happened here. And she says, if she does, there'll be all out war. But, Paul, um, Paul Paul seems to know some things about kinds that he shouldn't know. He seems to have that kind of information. And he also talks about wanting to make a, a play to become the emperor, uh, to, to make a move for the emperor's throne. The Sardaukar, they find the group and they attack and they uh, are they're pretty formidable in battle. And eventually what happens is that uh, only... Uh, the Duncan is there and is able to hold them off for a little bit, and but then eventually, what happens is that Duncan closes himself into a, a corridor, into a hallway, with the Sardaukar. So he allows Paul and Kynes and Jessica to escape, while he tries to fight off the Sardaukar. But eventually, uh, the Sardaukar are able to defeat Duncan. There's just too many of them. There's just he he can't defeat all of those at this all those that many people at the same time and he is is killed but the others escape. So Kynes tells Paul and Jessica to uh, to to head south. She's going to give them a ship and they can head south to find the Fremen. So Paul and Jessica escape one way and then Kynes uh, she she goes to go um, another way and she is there and one. You're you're kind of wondering at least what she's going to do, but what what uh, at least I think I am at that point wondering which direction she is going to go. But then uh, some sort of a Sardaukar assassin comes up and stabs Kynes, and she kind of rolls down the hill. She's her she's been stabbed. She's in, in the desert, and the Sardaukar assassin tells her, "You have betrayed the emperor." And Kynes says, I serve only one master. His name is Shai Halud. And then she's pounding on the ground. And with that, it draws the attention of a worm who comes up and eats Kynes and the three Sardaukar assassins. And then Paul and Jessica, they have other ships that are flying after them as they escape. And uh, Jessica goes through the, the fears, the mind killer speech again. And uh, they are able to escape they are able to escape um, and go, and eventually they land and also meet up with the Fremen. They're told 
to go to go south, and that's what they do, and they are able uh, to meet up with the Fremen. But before they do that, before they meet up with the Fremen, when they're on the ship, Paul seems to have another... Paul has another vision. I think it's a vision, but it's a vision that ultimately cannot come true. So he has this vision of, of Jameis, and Jameis says something interesting. So Jameis is one of the Fremen, uh, and somebody who we have not really met yet, but Paul is seeing here in a vision, if I'm understanding this correctly. And here is what, here's what uh, Jameis tells him. The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. A process that cannot be understood by stopping it. We must move with the flow of the process. We must join it. We must flow with it. Let's say that again here. This is what James tells Paul. The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. A process that cannot be understood by stopping it. We must move with the flow of the process. We must join it. We must flow with it. Now, I'm not, we don't, again, we don't know much about Jameis and who he is, but what we do know here in this, from this quote about Jameis and what he is saying here is Jameis would seem to be a, a, a fan of what is called process theology. We can even see that here within his quote here, that, that, that the mystery of life is a process that cannot be understood by stopping it. We, we must move with the flow of the process. We must join it. We must flow in it. So he seems to have this, this process theology in what he is saying there. So what is process theology? Well, process theology is based on the philosophy that the only absolute that exists in the world is change. Therefore, everything is constantly changing, including God. Yes, in process theology, God is continuously changing. So God, like the rest of us in process theology, God is in process of becoming, and God is also connected to the physical world. He's not transcendent of the world, as the classical under, classical and correct understanding of Christian theology has said for a very long time. God is not transcendent in process theology, but he is connected to the physical world. According to the website philosophydungeon.weebly.com, the following are major points of process theology. Major points of process theology, which again is, is also contains a God, uh, understanding of a God that can change. The first is that a changeable God could react to prayers. Because God might have been intending to do one thing, but your prayers might have changed his mind. So in process theology, God could react to the prayer. So this is kind of, again, some of the major points of process theology for them. Also, a changeable God could guarantee human free will. Because if God is changeable, then he doesn't predetermine what humans will do because he's at change. So he can't predetermine things. If he is in the process of becoming and the process of change, then He's not going to determine things if he himself is still changing. Then it also says a changeable God isn't entirely omnipotent because other things can affect him. So he changed. So in process theology, God is not truly all powerful. 
he, he truly doesn't have all 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 power. Also in process theology, a changeable God can have a genuinely loving relationship with humans, is what they say, because loving relationships are reciprocal. Both parents can change each other. Both, excuse me, both partners can change each other instead of one of them changing while the other stays the same. So a changeable God says that they can have a true relationship with humans, although I don't understand why a God who doesn't, who is the same, could not have a loving. Anyway, and then they also say this, that this is one of their main points and main highlights of process theology. A changeable God improves over time. And they expand upon this a little bit. It says this last point might seem odd, and it is odd from the traditional view of God as a perfect being. But process theology suggests that God is not yet completely perfect. He is journeying towards perfection, evolving into a perfect being, but hasn't obtained perfection yet. That's what process theology is, and that seems to be the kind of mindset here that Jameis has. So process theology is actually pretty new within the framework of theology and within the framework of Christian understanding. It's very new and just doesn't fit in with what Christians have traditionally understood. And when I say traditionally understood, what I mean when I say talking about it in this sense, I'd be using like a big T kind of uh, capital T on that word tradition, which would basically be be referring to what has been believed by all Christians at all times and in all places. And what has really been believed at all times in all places by all Christians is that God is perfect. That God is holy. God is not in the process of becoming perfect. He's not in the process of improving his moral qualities. He's not in the process of becoming all-powerful. No, God is already there. God is perfect. He is not progressing towards perfection because he is already perfect. So one of the things here that is really taken a hold in process theology is this idea that God can change. Because some people don't like that God is unchanging. I don't know why. But I also think that sometimes God's unchangingness is something that is very misunderstood. So here in the scriptures in Malachi 3, 6 through 7a, we read this. The Lord, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. So right there in Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. And then Hebrews 13, 8 says this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So God does not change, we read here, that I, the Lord, do not change. God does not change. What does that mean? God is not changing who he is. God is perfect. God is holy. God is almighty. God is good. God is powerful. All those different things. God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. God does not change in who he is, but God's feelings certainly can change. We see in the scriptures that God gets upset with people, that God is pleased with people, that he is happy, that he is angry, that that he is patient, that 
that we see all these different reactions and these different emotions that God has. God has emotions and these um, those emotions can and do change, but that does not mean that God has changed who he is in terms of his character or his attributes. So God is not in the process of becoming perfect being because he has always been perfect and always will be perfect. He's not in that process of becoming. He's already there. And just because we say that God is unchanging, that does not mean that God could not react to our prayers because God is is unchanging in the sense of his holiness and of his goodness and of his justice and who he is. God is unchanging in that. But that doesn't mean that God could not change in terms of his emotions, in terms of how he feels about people, in terms of his will and how he reacts to prayer. So we've talked about some of these things before, but but just because God is the same in who he is in his character does not mean that he uh, can't have a genuine relationship with people or that that um, he, he can't do all these different different things. No, he still can because God... So sometimes I think what happens is some people hear that God is not changing. They think that God, that means that God has made up his mind or God has written some things in stone and that's what always is going to happen and that's what's always going to go and all those different things because God is unchanging and there it is and God can never change anything about it. That is not what's saying that God is unchanging or that God is the same. That's not what that's saying. God is saying, that's saying that God is the same in terms of his character, in terms of the qualities that he has, in terms of his attributes. God does not change in those, and he is not in the process of becoming something greater or something perfect because he's already the the greatest possible being that can be, and he is already perfect. He's not in that process of becoming it. But here in the movie, James's quote is in this vision certainly seems certainly seems to be quite prominently in the in support of process theology and understanding that and understanding that God is in the process of becoming something, but also making that argument that we are in that process as well. Now, I can see and understand how we are in the process of becoming. So process theology, though, is not talking about people in the process of becoming holy or people in the process of becoming Christ-like. They're talking about God being in process and God being in change of character and quality and characteristics and all those different it's it's God who does the changing and process theology and who is changing in those ways, who is progressing towards something better and something more perfect and all those kinds of things. But but pretty we would even say within the classical understanding of Christianity that, that we as people are in the process of becoming like Jesus Christ. We would say that and we would be comfortable with that, and that's that's what it is. We people are are, are in the process of becoming. But process theology says also that God is in the process of becoming. So James's quote there just reminded me some of process theology and kind of an interesting tie-in to be able to talk about that, to talk about this rather new idea that is gaining some ground and I truly don't understand why. Um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me why this is grabbed on with some people. They really like the idea that, it, I think that some people really like the idea that if they are changing and they are in the process of becoming that God is changing and in the process with them. So we feel like we're in this together, but I take more comfort in knowing who God is and that he's already reached that and that he is already perfect, that he's already powerful, that he's already there and mighty and is great and is, is love. 
that God is already there. I take more comfort in knowing that God is there and will not change in those characteristics and in those attributes. I take more comfort and strength and more hope in knowing that he's already there and not changing than he is in the process of becoming like I am. Because he's already there so he can help me to get there and doesn't have to be in this process changing like I am. No, no, he's not trying to morally improve because he's already there and that gives me hope and that gives me comfort. And uh, so so just some, some there about process theology and some of the ideas behind that and how it really doesn't line up with the scriptures and the Christian understanding of who God is, although some people try to make it fit, but it just doesn't fit because God is already perfect. God is already holy. He is not in that process of becoming those things because he already is those. He has been those forever. He is holy and perfect today, and he will be throughout the rest of eternity. He's already made it. He's not in the process of becoming that. Back to the movie, and Baron is alive. He's in some kind of healing vat, and we see that the the leader of his army is there, and that they chase Paul and Jessica into some kind of storm, and they are certain that he is dead. They're certain that they've been taken care of, that nobody could survive that, although we know that Paul and Jessica have survived it, and Baron thinks that it is done. So he wants them to start selling some of the spice reserves, and uh, his only... His only, uh, the only thing he wants now is more income. He just wants more money. He wants it to come in, and that is his focus. And the Lord Baron also orders that all Fremen are to be killed. That's something else that he wants to see, all Fremen to be killed. Paul and his mom crash land, and they're okay. They're in the desert. They have their suits on, and they're looking for the Fremen. And and Paul has a visions with the Fremen some more and sees that, you know, he hears, uh, don't be frightened, even a little desert mouse can survive when he sees these visions and there's this little mouse out there. So Paul and his mom, though, they end up running from a sandworm and someone sets off a thumper to draw them away, the worm away from them. And a thumper is just like a, a, a some mechanical thing that just is, pounds the ground. So it, it keeps hitting the ground. So it draws the attention of the worm. So somebody sets off a thumper. And then they find the Fremen, or maybe really it's just the Fremen have revealed their presence to them. The Fremen seems to know where they are long before they know where the Fremen is. And then Stigler is there with the Fremen, and some of the Fremen want to attack, and I assume kill Paul and his mother because they need their water, they need their body fluids, or I don't know exactly what it is they talk about this need for for fluid and water though so they talk about killing paul and his mother but one asks how paul could be the lisan al-gaib when he hasn't proved himself how can you be the lisan al-gaib how can you be the messiah when you have not proven yourself but what does paul have to do to prove that he is the messiah i'm not sure that we're really told what paul needs to do to prove that he is the messiah but we um well well what has jesus done or what does jesus have to do to to prove i'm not sure that's the right word but what does he have to do to prove that he maybe it is maybe the right word what does he have to do to prove that he is the messiah what proves that jesus is the messiah there's really there's really a few things that go into this uh one of those 
would be the fulfillment of prophecy, that Jesus has fulfilled all the prophecies that have been given, that were written, all the prophecies in the, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, as they're sometimes called, all the, the prophecies in the Old Testament, Jesus has fulfilled. So Jesus is the Messiah because he has fulfilled all of the, uh, of the prophets for the Messiah in the Old Testament. But there's also some other things that we look to for Jesus to see that he's Messiah, the Messiah. There's really, there's really five things here. There's the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So Jesus is born and born to a virgin, born in this miraculous, incredible way. Jesus is born there and born as the Son of God, born in a way, born of a, of a mother, but also born in a way that he's conceived in which no one else is. So he has this miraculous birth. The second thing with his life is he lives a life that is sinless. Jesus is the only person who's been on earth who has not sinned. So Jesus is born in this miraculous way. He lives a life without sinning. And then he also dies. He is crucified. He is, is killed for the sins of the, of the people. Killed for the sins of the world. that He takes our place where we should be. But then three days later, he is resurrected, resurrected by God's power and resurrected so that death no longer takes a hold of him so that we can be truly free from death and sin and slavery. But then also, Jesus ascends into heaven. That Jesus is not resurrected and then has to die again later on like we see like Lazarus. Lazarus is resurrected, but later on, Lazarus will die again and then will not be resurrected. But Jesus is not going to die again because he has ascended into heaven. So we have this birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Those five very important things for Jesus to be the Messiah. And if Jesus, if, if one of those five things does not happen, if the birth of Jesus does not happen in the way that it did, if Jesus does not live a sinless life, if Jesus is, is not killed for the sins of the world, if Jesus is not resurrected, if Jesus does not ascend to heaven, if those five, if one of those five things doesn't happen, then Jesus would not be the Messiah. Those are the things, some kind of five major things. There are other things too, you know, fulfilling prophecy and all, all those other things. But, but it really, th those are five very important things. Birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. If one of those things is off, then then you don't have the Messiah, but Jesus fulfills all of those things. He has the, the birth in that miraculous way that, that was foretold. He has the sinless life. He dies for sins. He's resurrected and he ascends into heaven. So those five things, those actions that Jesus has done show us, they prove to us that he is indeed the Messiah. Back to the movie and one of the Fremen, Jameis. Again, we see Jameis now in real life, but we just saw him in a vision. And I'm pretty sure it was Jameis in the vision. I wasn't 100% about that, but I watched the movie with subtitles on so I can read and make sure that I'm understanding more. And the subtitles credit, uh, the subtitles say that in that vision that Paul had that was talking about the process of becoming, that that is Jameis. In that vision, that's who that is. That's who the credits or that's who the, the subtitles credit with speaking is, is Jameis. So, so he is the one that Paul has just seen that vision. But now he's here with this Fremen uh, group here. And Jameis calls Paul a weakling. But Stigler says 
That was a brave crossing they made in the path of Shai Hulud. Shai Hulud again being the giant sandworm. He does not speak or act like a weakling, nor did his father. That's what Stigler says. And then Jameis says, go back to reason, Stigler. He's not the one. Then Jessica asks them to help get off the planet. Just help get us off the planet. Surely you could smuggle us off or get us off here some way and they will be rewarded. But Stigler says, what wealth can you offer beyond the water in your flesh? That's kind of a creepy line. What wealth can you offer beyond the water in your flesh? So Stigler says Paul is young and can learn their ways and he gets to stay alive, but Jessica is too old to learn. And then they attack Jessica, but she defends herself against Stigler and the others, and then she gets a knife to Stigler's neck. She's defeated him, and he... We see that Paul then... Um, well, while Jessica is, defeat, is kind of overtaking them, Paul also runs to the high ground, which is um, a good move for that young Padawan, as sci-fi fans should know. It is over when your opponent has the high ground. But Stigler is surprised, and he says he judged too harshly, and Jessica lets him go. Stigler has this idea, Stigler's going to let her live, and that maybe she really is useful after all. He says that their uh, faith will be decided at uh, Stick Tabber, which is a place they're going to, so the, that's where they're going to go, and then the fate uh, of, of Paul and Jessica will be decided there, but they are safe until then. So Paul, so Stigler says Paul and Jessica will be safe until we get to Stick Tabber, where they're going. And then a girl says to Paul, so Paul has this gun, and he's pointing it at everybody because he's taking the high ground, and then this girl says to Paul, I would not have let you hurt my friends. And it's the girl he has been seeing visions of. So Stigler has accepted them, but Jameis says, I will not have them. He's unwilling to accept the others. But as we've already talked about, as the church, as followers of Jesus, we should be accepting of others. Accepting of them into God's family, again, not lifestyles of sin or the way that people are living and sin and destruction and harm. We are not accepting of those things because we want people to be healthy and we want what is best for them. But we know what is best for them is getting into God's family, accepting that salvation that Jesus offers. And then once that's accepted, Jesus comes into your life and starts to clean things up. So we accept people. We as the followers of Jesus should be willing to accept people where they're at and then help them uh, from there. But back to the movie. And Jameis says to Stigler, you talk like a leader. But the strongest leads, she bested you. So now it seems like Jameis thinks that Jessica is the leader. But then Jameis says, I invoke the Amtal. And, uh, and Stigler says, you may not challenge a Saidina. And he bet, I, I'm not exactly sure 100% what that means. But he begs uh, Jameis not to do this. And I think it means that he's not allowed to challenge uh, maybe it means you're not allowed to challenge a woman. That's kind of the way that I understood that. You may not challenge a Sadaina. I, I don't know, though, because Jessica needs someone to fight under her name. She needs someone to fight for her because she can't fight for herself. He can't challenge. He can't challenge her. So Paul steps forward, and Paul and Jameis are to fight. So Paul sees a vision where he is killed by Jameis. And voices say, Paul, Atreides, must die for Kwisatz Haderach to rise. 
Hmm. Well, what does that sound like? There must be a death for the Messiah to rise. Oh, that also certainly sounds very Christ-like, does it not? This idea of a death and then a resurrection or a rising of Paul is this Kwisatz Haderach. But the voice continues, don't be frightened, don't resist. When you take a life, you take your own. What does that mean? I'm not really sure. So the girl from the visions, her name is Shani, uh, Shani. Her name is Shani, and she tells Paul she doesn't believe that he is the Lisan al-Gaib. Which is okay, because he hasn't proven this yet. So, for, for now, she just has the words of others to go off of. She hasn't seen it for himself. And Paul, Paul's words will not convince her of, of if he is the Lisan al-Gaib or not. But that will be seen through his actions. Jesus also doesn't start with, hey guys, I'm the son of God. That's not where Jesus starts. Jesus goes out and and lives the life that he lives. And people draw that, own, that conclusion on their own that he is the son of God. Jesus doesn't start there with saying it. He goes and he has actions and what he does and how he treats people and how he lives. Others who see that are able to come to their own conclusion that surely Jesus is the son of God. Back to the movie, and Shania gives Paul a crisp sword made from a sandworm tooth so that he will die with honor. She says it will be a great honor for you to die holding this. But Paul fairly quickly gets the upper hand and holds a knife to James's throat and asks Jameis, do you, do you yield? But according to the Amtal, there is no yielding as they fight to the death. And Paul has several chances to kill Jameis, and Stigler eventually just asks Jessica, is Paul, toying, is Paul toying with him? Is he just messing with him? But Jessica says no, because Paul has never killed a man. And Paul is struggling with it, struggling with this idea that he has to kill this person, and Paul should be struggling with it. It shouldn't be easy to kill somebody. It shouldn't be easy to just take a life. Paul, Paul, this is really getting to him, and he really doesn't want to do this, but... In order to save himself, he's kind of been forced to defend against this battle and defend his life to the death of another. But he should be struggling with this. Paul gets a serious, deadly look in his eyes. He hears the voice say, Kwisatz Haderach, climb up, rise. And then Jameis charges at Paul, but Paul gets a death blow on Jameis, which is Again, like I said, confusing because Jameis was in Paul's earlier vision, teaching and guiding, seeming to give direction about life and understanding to Paul. So perhaps these visions are not really visions of the future. Maybe they're just visions of a possible future. I'm not really sure what those are. Um, so, we, But we've also seen Paul have a vision where, where Jameis killed him, and that doesn't come either so not all these visions are visions i i i don't know um i'm not i'm not exactly sure but stigler tells paul you're one of us now a life for a life yeah but jessica wants to take paul off world to be smuggled to the fremen off planet but paul says no the emperor sent us to this place and my father came not for not for spice not for the riches but for the strength of your, of, uh, of your people. My road leads into the desert. I can see it. If you'll have us, 
we will come. And Jessica and Paul join the Fremen, and then they see a Fremen who's riding on a sandworm. They've got like hooks into the sandworm and attached to it, and they're riding on the back. This Fremen is riding on the back of a sandworm, and Paul says, Desert power. And then Shania says, This is only the beginning. End movie, roll credits. And that does it for Dune Part 1 from 2021, where topics discussed include the theology of dreams, fear, why Jesus is the Messiah, process theology, as well as other topics. Well, what did I miss? Is there anything that I missed? Is there any other thoughts? What did you like about this? What are some discussions that were fruitful? I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Theology and Sci-Fi. And again, we spell sci-fi the right way around here, S-C-I-F-I. Or you can follow on Facebook at uh, Theology and Sci-Fi, the podcast. Or you can email me at theologyandsci-fi at gmail.com. So thank you for listening. Thank you for this. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. It was really fun to look at a newer movie and to see some of the theological themes within that, even though this was based off of a book that was written Again, a very long time ago. So um, maybe not a truly new work of science fiction, but still I think it was fun to look at uh, that came out uh, last year in 2021 in a movie that that I really uh, actually enjoyed. So thank you for that. And I'd love to hear any more comments or any more thoughts or discussions you may have from this book. But where are we going to go from here? I just want to take a few minutes to, to talk about what's, what's happening and where we're going. So oftentimes I have referred to uh, what we're doing here uh, in this podcast is season one. And season one will be coming to an end pretty soon. So here's here's what I was thinking for season one. I'll let you into my thought process a little bit. In season one, I wanted to look at six movies and six books. So far, we have looked at uh, five movies and four books. So far, that's that's where we've gotten even though we're on episode 10 because the left-handed darkness took two episodes. In the next episode, episode 11, we'll be looking at the book Foundation by Isaac Asimov, the science fiction classic there. So that's what we'll be doing in episode 11, looking at the book Foundation. And then in episode 12, we'll be looking at the film Metropolis from, I believe it's 1927, this first full-length science fiction film. So we'll be looking at the film Metropolis. And then for episode 13, we'll be looking at Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, the first science fiction book. So I thought that would be a really fun way to end this first season is by looking at what is considered to be the first full-length motion picture that is within the genre of science fiction and Metropolis, and then also looking at what is considered to be the first science fiction book, Frankenstein. I thought that'd be a really fun way to end the season looking at those two works and kind of seeing where these genres started in film and also seeing where the genre started in books. So that's kind of where we're going. So episode 11, Foundation, episode 12, Metropolis, and episode 13, Frankenstein. And that'll do it for season one. But don't worry, that's not the end of the podcast. For season two, we're going to change things up just a little bit. Not too much, but I'll tell you some more about that, and there'll be some more things coming about that in the weeks ahead and I'll I'll let you know about that and where we're going but I just want to let you know where we're going from here kind of wrapping up season one in the next three episodes and then I have some interesting ideas and some things I'm looking forward to to season two and then also I'm super excited about where I have an idea to go with the third season so uh, I'm still in this for the long haul and truly enjoy this and, and truly enjoy your interactions and your input and your following and thank you for that 
If this is uh, impacting you, influencing you in any way that's positive, tell some friends, let them know about it, and hopefully it can influence them uh, as as well as we go through this. And as we learn theology through the vehicle of science fiction, I just love it. I think it's a lot of fun. So thank you for listening. I truly appreciate it and look forward to the next time we can do this. So thank you. If you are benefiting from this, tell a friend, give a social media post. Um, We would love to see that and love to see some more people be able to listen to this and be able to learn theology while while watching and reading science fiction. I think it's a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you for your support and thank you for being a fan. I truly, truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening for Theology and Sci-Fi. I am Derek V. Trout. Fear is the mind killer.